Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from The Lancet Oncology. This podcast is accompanying the August issue and today we're discussing one of the papers from that issue which is a phase one trial titled Convection Enhanced Delivery for Diffuse Intrinsic Pontine Glioma. Joining me to discuss this paper is one of the authors, Professor Mark Swedan. Please can you introduce yourself to our listeners? The name is Dr. Mark Swedan. I serve as the Vice Chairman and Professor of Neurological Surgery at Weill Cornell Medical College and the Director of Pediatric Neurosurgery at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. Thank you for joining us. So to start with, before we go into your paper, please can you provide a bit of background to your study and some of the challenges involved in the treatment of diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma? The uh, time constraints might not allow us to talk about all the challenges involved in uh, uh, the investigative aspect of this type of tumor. I'm a neurosurgeon by training, and the background stems from really the inefficiency that uh, we in oncology have faced in the treatment of this particular disease called diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, or DIPG. Really, since the time of my training uh, up until the beginning of my career, we've watched uh, no improvement uh, based on uh, an increase in benefit and survival. Regardless of the form of therapy offered for these children, it has always been recognized as uh, really the the worst of the worst with regard to primary uh, tumors affecting the central nervous system in children. Some of the barriers and the major barriers to, to moving this forward in a research environment have somewhat been predictable. Um, these tumors, historically, we have not had access to tissue based on the typical clinical and radiographic criteria used for diagnosis. The domain of uh, expecting some type of improvement with regard to a disease that has a median survival of less than 12 months certainly is a deterrent, Um, not not an environment that anybody wants to surround themselves with. And then the other major barrier historically has been the lack of funding. An extremely rare tumor, it represents uh, maybe 10% of all pediatric brain tumors at time of diagnosis. So the input of inertia funding have been extremely, extremely slim historically. Uh, So those barriers uh, were real and uh, still to this day are present to some degree. Um, But the the reality of it was early in my career is naivete to think that we couldn't make an improvement based on successes built in other primary brain tumors of the brain, uh, medulloblastoma being front and center. When I finished my training, we were looking at survival rates that were in excess of 70, 75%. And if one were to delineate this as another central nervous system tumor, which it is, or look at other systemic cancers in children, you know, cures are, are possible. There's no question about it. So the incentive was just that, uh, and that this is something that has been abandoned pretty much uh, for the most part, but we have truly remarkable successes in systemic cancers as well as CNS tumors in children. So uh, that was the incentive, and the, the barriers were, <laughs> were very problematic going into this. Please can you summarize the main findings of your study, and how exactly does convention-enhanced delivery work? I'll put a bit, a bit of background into the conceptual basis and the hypothetical nature of this going in, and that was really built around a, a very fundamental idea. And in CNS tumors, uh, central nervous system tumors of the kids uh, or in adults, uh, one of the well-known barriers to effective chemotherapeutic administration 
is what we have usually referred to as a privileged site within the central nervous system and that chemotherapeutic agents and many agents, therapeutic agents, uh, don't penetrate in concentrations that are effective within the interstitium and hence the tumor. With that being said, uh, theoretical issues and some practical aspects uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, looked at the advent of avoiding and bypassing what's referred to as the blood-brain barrier. You know, one of the basic principles behind getting higher concentrations in the brain in children historically has been dose escalation with systemic chemotherapy and high-dose chemotherapy, stem cell rescue, and myeloablative chemotherapy. Those have a track record not just of efficacy uh, based on that principle, but also of significant toxicity and even toxic mortality in children when, when used in those doses. So a, a way to avoid that is just go directly to the target with the substrate of, of interest. Thus, you're avoiding the systemic exposure, the limiting toxicity, and achieving the concentrations. That's, that's the hypothetical background that was built around this by Ed Oldfield you know, decades ago. So uh, applying that to the brainstem uh, was conceivably quite difficult in that, based on the definition of this, it, it requires the infusion of a substrate into a compartment of the brain. And the brainstem is a very difficult anatomical substrate to accept that type of uh, added infusion. It serves as a dominant relay center for everything from the brain proper to the rest of the body. So that was the, the basic principle of what we wanted to achieve. So in accomplishing this and testing this through a preclinical and then ultimately the phase one clinical study that is ongoing, but we reported in Lancet Oncology with regard to the preliminary aspects of the, the, the initial part of this study, what was really, in my estimation, quite revealing, uh, it, it had essentially validated and supported everything that we had hypothesized with regard to the dosimetry of what we wanted to accomplish. So here is this hypothetical idea of avoiding systemic toxicity, practically achieving high doses of concentration of your therapeutic substrate and your target lesion. Um, but this is really the first time that this has been done systemically with a dose escalation format, um, but as importantly, being able to monitor and measure dosimetry in a, in a scaled fashion using PET imaging and a radioisotope uh, that truly validated the conceptual backbone of this. Uh, and that uh, was the most rewarding element of this. Uh, the safety record speaks for itself, which was phenomenal in itself, but to accomplish that with confirmation of the dosimetry that we were hoping would support what we'd see in the preclinical arena was, was really uh, uh, quite rewarding. What was surprising and, and kind of against uh, my intuition is that we hadn't reached a maximum tolerated dose. And we speak of maximal tolerated dose in this format with regional drug infusion. There, there really is uh, a number of parameters that are built into that. And this is unlike systemic chemotherapy where the MTD is typically referred to as a concentration of drug being administered. So here we're dealing with different parameters that need to be looked at critically. So it's not just the concentration of the drug. And in this particular study, a radioimmunotherapeutic agent, uh, a tagged monoclonal antibody, but, but we also have to be cognizant of the volume of which we're infusing. The, unlike the systemic circulation, uh, there are finite volumes of tolerance that one would expect can be given within certain domains and specifically in the brainstem of children. So 
under the context of maximal tolerated dose is not just the, the dose or the, uh, the energy charge of the radioisotope, uh, but also the volume that we're infusing. And then the, the other third component, which we have to be extremely cognizant of, is the infusion rate. So as we dose escalate, it's not just the concentration of the therapeutic agent, but we're also in the backdrop looking at tolerance to volume at a single administration. We're looking at tolerance to infusion rates. So it truly uh, provides a level of complexity which typically doesn't exist in most dose escalation formats, and that any of those three variables or all three of those variables we have to be aware of as we, quote-unquote, dose escalate. Uh, surprisingly, you know, every volume within what we've reported in that recent paper was very well tolerated. Uh, we did not experience any dose-related toxicity uh, that was limiting. We did not uh, experience any volume-related toxicity that was limiting, nor rate-limiting toxicity. So surprisingly, that the tolerance was much better than I had anticipated going into this. So these elements were surprising. So we have not, with this particular agent, flow rate and volume reached a limitation insofar as we know, which opens up a huge door of opportunity here. You've mentioned some limitations there. What are the other limitations to this method in terms of infusions, timings, and the leptomeningeal and perivascular spread? So the, the fact that we've been able to accomplish what we reported uh, was, in my estimation, again, a, an amazing validation of principles here. From a pharmacologic standpoint, this is a quite an amazing opportunity. So now that the fact that we can achieve concentrations that are very effective from a therapeutic standpoint, avoid systemic toxicity and exposure, opens up a wide array of opportunity and challenges. So in doing this in an ongoing scale, you know, usually the purveyor of this type of uh, kind of innovation or platform recognizes the limitations more than anyone, and myself included. So, so as we do this, what becomes extremely crucial now, and, and many ask, are we designing, are we in the midst of a phase two study? The short answer is no, uh, because of the dosimetric issues that we need to define better. So I've commented on the difference between intralesional dose versus systemic exposure and how we've really inverted that normal therapeutic index. But can we monitor in a way that is factual over a longitudinal scale what the therapeutic concentration of a particular drug is in our region of interest? There is a large, large, not necessarily limitation, but challenge to us as research clinicians. With a radioisotope, something that we can monitor in a time scale fashion, uh, we've got that ability. So we can really translate what our therapeutic concentration is, our distribution is, and our longitudinal concentration or therapeutic concentration is over days. This becomes an extremely important tool in designing, or at least providing, the, the best available phase two design that we can go into. Most therapeutic agents, the overwhelming majority, however, don't have and have not have this aspect of direct labeling. So the pharmacokinetic monitoring of those agents becomes very uh, arbitrary to some degree, based purely on preclinical animal models and pharmacokinetic assays. So there is a major limitation of this type of format. 
uh, unlike where you can measure concentrations in blood or even end organs, you know, in systemic cancer, this becomes extremely difficult. I wouldn't say limiting the fact that it shouldn't be propelled forward. I think just the opposite. I think we're going to see a lot of attention paid to this. But I would stress to individuals, platform centers, you know, clinical research teams to pay close attention to the optimal design of this with the pharmacokinetic element of this built into the design of a phase two study before moving forward. Because at the end of the day, we don't want the local or direct drug delivery to be gauged based on survival if we do not have the parameters that are ideal going into a therapeutic trial that is designed to look at clinical benefits. So so that is, I think, the, the major challenge. One other challenge will come from really putting this in the hands of, of skilled neurosurgeons and oncology groups throughout the world. You know, we have vested, as you'd expect, uh, you know, close to a decade and a half in the optimization from interfaces at the surgical suite, device manufacturers, uh, the dose scaling, the imaging component of this. So the safety record in that, in that report and the phase one element uh, within the Lancet has been phenomenal but that should not be translated into a simplistic means of, of doing this in these children on an ongoing fashion that is really, I think, generalizable. And so that's another limitation in that the, the burden will be upon uh, myself and other individuals who have excelled this platform to train individuals in the appropriate application of this and the safe element of doing this. But those are some of the, the major limitations, I think, about in, in moving forward. And one other one I will say, which I feel uh, very strongly about, um, given what we've been able to demonstrate with dosimetry, given what has happened historically in, in neuro-oncology with uh, agent after agent after agent being explored and deemed um, non-beneficial or ineffective or toxic, uh, here's an opportunity, again, that is uh, extremely, extremely wide in its, in its appeal. And that I would propose that conventional cytotoxic therapy, which has a long track record and some very effective, um, I think, anecdotes, needs to be re-explored. So those historical ideas that agent after agent cannot be brought forth and should not be explored further because of limitations with systemic toxicity or because they were ineffective, presumably because of lack of the, the therapeutic concentrations we needed, uh, here's a great opportunity to capitalize on, on work that is decades old that, that need to be reevaluated from the standpoint of potentially repurposing a lot of effective agents. Um, so great opportunity and I think uh, you know, limitations based on the workforce put into this. Uh, these are not easy platforms, um, uh, time constraints, finances that go into this. But I'm thoroughly convinced, you know, based again on the dosimetry and the safety, we've got great opportunity here to make an impact on this disease for the first time that I have witnessed in my career. So one of the not just theoretical but practical concerns is you're really moving forward with a platform built on regional disease control. You know, you're you're ignoring the bigger beast in the, in this element, and that a certain proportion of these kids measured in tens of percentages. Uh, will ultimately show disseminated disease at some point in their disease course. I, more than anyone, accept that as a potential limitation. But a couple of things to say about that. 
that historically, if one looks at the success stories in oncology, uh, that has been a very common element, whether they be brain tumors or other systemic tumors. I mean, you can look at leukemia as far as relapse within the central nervous system as being a quote-unquote barrier to some of the therapies that were offered. But we've watched this evolution of first craniospinal irradiation, effective but detrimental. Then we moved into the realm of intrathecal therapies to prophylax against the late or CNS late recurrences of those diseases with great success. Uh, So there are solutions to these issues that uh, practically exist. We've seen this with medulloblastoma in children, a highly radiosensitive and chemosensitive tumor. But we, in the oncology realm, have been burdened with CNS dissemination. Uh, But there have been tools built around not just prophylaxing and treating those children, but uh, really accelerating a safe maneuver for doing this. So in a similar vein, as I spoke about with the hemopoietic cancers, um, avoiding high doses of craniospinal irradiation and dose reduction and supplementing with other forms of therapy, uh, but being equally effective. So it's my hope and it's my claim that if we can demonstrate maybe not even increase in survival in this first element of this. If we do, fantastic. But if we're seeing any element of regional control, uh, I think that's a great success story that the oncology world needs to then look at critically and, and attempt to address. Historically, and for my entire career, we've treated this tumor, DIPG, with regional therapy, and that's external beam radiation therapy. We have never been critical of that from the standpoint of should we be providing craniospinal irradiation or should we be prophylaxing the entire CNS access. So there's a precedent that we've always adhered to that if we can demonstrate regional control, then we can uh, talk about combinatorial therapy or other adjuncts on top of that. And we've already been talking about those from the standpoint of a potential phase two study. Should we be looking at supplementing that with some form of intrathecal therapy? Should we be expanding the radiation fields? Because uh, on the surface with some of these patients, we're, we're seeing which looks like very optimistic results from the standpoint of regional control within the brainstem, um, which is remarkable historically, which is something that's never to date been demonstrated uh, outside of you know, the transient effect with upfront uh, radiation therapy, which is not necessarily durable. So yes, we, we understand fully the potential challenges with regard to distant relapse outside of the area of uh, treatment. Uh, but one other element is we, we've always resorted to innovative clinical trials and early phase clinical trials in DIPG to uh, include patients at the time of recurrence. So it's our hope, and we've backed up our clinical trial to preempt the, the timing of most kids before they exhibit uh, any progression. So it's, it's also conceivable that if effective treatment is offered early enough, that maybe that late uh, dissemination or uh, potential for dissemination is reduced with earlier treatment. So there, there are very thoughtful ways to address this, but I think that the, the way I, I look at this is if we can confidently, reproducibly demonstrate regional control, then that's something we build into the next uh, element of effective therapy for these kids. You've mentioned a few things looking to the future. Are there any other next steps? in diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma treatment? Oh, plenty. You know, and fortunately, I can say that because that, that wasn't the case uh, as shy as 20, 30, certainly maybe even 10 years ago. What I've watched happen in this time 
frame, by the way, is, is really a wonderful commentary on, I think, both the invested neuro-oncologists who feel for these children and their families, as well as the even individuals and foundations and the grassroots organizations who have wanted to propel this into the, the forefront of clinical research and basic science research. So we've watched really a disease that was so obscure with many distractions and disincentives to something that is nearly front and center in most consortia, most uh, neuro-oncology research efforts. And it's really one of the best characterized tumors on the genomic scale that we've witnessed in, in uh, neuro-oncology over the past 30 years, really because of those two forces, the, the shared interest in oncology, and now the element to move that forward based on available funding, typically through these foundations and generosity of individuals who have wanted to literally alter that priority scale. And, that, and I've watched this happen in real time, and it's, a, it's an amazing commentary. So not just based on you know, drug delivery, that's been, a, in my opinion, a huge success and step forward in this disease that may have wider applications in the future, uh, but also from the standpoint of the genomic, the biological, the molecular scaling of this tumor is another huge success story in DIPG over the past uh, several years, which has now opened up the door to other avenues of research which look very promising, whether they be uh, immunologic, cell-based. You know, these, are, these are ongoing efforts that we're watching clinical trials, pilot studies, uh, really open up on an annual basis to very, very rapidly force this into something that uh, we hope is going to result in some clinical benefit. You know, it's, it's the hope, and I think uh, we've watched this in DIPG, collective efforts internationally. Um, you know, I think most of us invested in this have given away our sense of individualized acclaim or rights to any of this, and uh, I think uh, there's been a lot of hand-holding, a lot of shared information, a lot of transparency. And I'm very encouraged by watching that uh, in our international community and DIPG. So I, I have great hope in the short term that there's a collective effort here that's going on and is being fueled by very generous individuals and foundations. Thank you again, Professor Svidani, for taking the time to speak to the Lancet Oncology today about your paper. My pleasure, Francesca, and thank you for your time.